Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with theologian Ellen Davis. There is a shorter produced version of this, which includes poetry from Wendell Berry that he read for this show. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just, I am looking, I'm sort of in an enclosed blue booth looking at a black thing that I'm pretending is you. Okay, It's not very convincing. Just close your eyes. That's what I'll be doing. Okay, fine. (laughs) Good. Um, I'm hearing, Chris, I think my microphone is pretty hot and... I was, but I'm not. I was hearing an echo at first, but I'm okay now. Ellen, are you hearing me all right? And is any? Are I'm, you, I'm, I'm hearing you fine. And you're without an echo. All right. Um, how, just need one more second, Krista. All right. <laughs> just before we start, are you well? Is Dwayne well? I'm well. Yes, yeah. thank you. And Dwayne's very well. Okay. He's a, he's a year into recovery from hip surgery, and it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So. Things are good, thank okay. you, and and you and your children. Yeah, every everything's good. I just um, have been doing way too much traveling because I had this new book come out that oh, Einstein's, I don't think I knew. Yeah, Einstein's God. It's um, it's a it's a, it's it's drawn from my interviews with scientists, and it's a uh-huh. lot of fun to be out there talking about. But um, I'm I'm happy to be back, and my kids are happy to have me back. I bet they are. So. <laughs> Well, congratulations well, on that. I'll send you a copy. I should. I actually think it. I had put that down on a list somewhere at some point and forgot. So, Chris, I'm still feeling kind of loud, or it went up again. My volume went up again. How about now? Um, okay. Well, now I'm hearing an echo on the other end. What's that? Sew it up. Okay. I think I'm fine. Now, do you hear that? Now there's a, an echo. Ellen, I wonder if, I wonder if her headphones are up a little bit high. Yeah, if we could have Ellen turn her headphones down a little bit. Okay. Is there an can engineer? Can someone turn my Yes, can okay. someone turn my headphones down? We're not getting any response. Yeah, go ahead and try that again. Okay. okay. How is this? Um, testing. Does it testing. make a difference? I think it does. Yes, the echo's gone. Okay. Okay. Um, Chris, do you need... I have also just to let the engineer know, I've also lowered the microphone just a bit because it was above the level of my mouth, and I was sort of reaching up toward it. How does that work? That's fine. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, So, Chris, I think I could have even a little bit less volume, and then maybe, why don't I, let me ask you something mundane, like um, what you had for breakfast. I had cereal okay. and fruit. Right. That doesn't give you much to expand. <laughs> what, Do you need a little more expansion? Yeah. Tell me about lunch then. Shall I, shall I tell you what's in bloom in our garden? Yes, which is tell a more me pleasant that. topic. Tell yeah. me that. Virginia sweet spire and the irises are just peaking and going down. The echinacea is coming up. It's actually a very pretty time in North Carolina. Um, I imagine it's tulip time in It is tulip in, time. <laughs> the uh, I people don't think of Minnesota as as lush, but it really is. Our neighborhood is just incredible. It was it was kind of, it's a na- it's a very special neighborhood and it was 
it was kind of constructed to be harmonious with the natural world and with uh-huh. the creatures. And uh, we even have the occasional wild turkey and fox. And <laughs> we oh, have squirrels wonderful. who think they, and birds. And uh, so I was traveling in April and I missed that period where the snow is gone, but there's nothing growing. And I came right. back and it was all there. Everything in bloom, I feel like. So, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Wonderful. It is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, Feeling good about levels? I think we're great. Okay. So um, I'm slightly daunted interviewing my teacher like this, and I'm going to have to be in a different <laughs> role with you. <laughs> right. so I think we can get past let's that. Let's just try to get okay. past it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as I was thinking about the questions I might want to ask you, some of which I always ask people, I realized that even though you and I have had conversations around these things, I've never quite asked you these questions. I don't, I don't know all the answers. So, so, so one place I always start with people, you know, whatever we're talking about, is uh, was there a religious background to your childhood? And actually, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question. Uh, yes, I grew up... I'm a cradle Episcopalian. Okay. I've there's never been a time in my life when I haven't gone to church, but I would say that church means quite a different thing to me, or religion means quite a different thing to me, than I think it did to my parents or anyone, almost anyone else in my family. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up in a family that would have defined itself as particularly religious, although we were churchgoers. When and how did you start heading towards a career in biblical scholarship and theology? How did that happen? Consciously, I was an exceedingly late bloomer. (laughs) Um, I was in my third of four years of seminary before I decided that I was going to teach. Um, But if you look at my resume, it looks as though when I was 18 and I went to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for a year, I decided I was going to be a biblical scholar. Mm -hmm. Um, So unconsciously, you know what they say in Hebrew, etzba Elohim, finger of God, I think I was sort of being pointed, if not pushed in that direction, mm-hmm. at a much younger age. Um, but initially it was, it was um, you, you, had a, you had an academic interest or curiosity, but you didn't know what you wanted to do with it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was a classics major at college. I was interested in the ancient world. It never occurred to me to focus on religion or Bible. Mm-hmm. I was going to a state university, the University of California. Um, we didn't even have a department of religion. And so it was, and women were not ordained in, at that time in the Episcopal Church. So it never occurred to me that I would have a profession in religion. I'm also, I'm quite introverted, and it would not have occurred to me that I would enjoy work as public as teaching is. Mm-hmm. When I was a young person, I wanted to be a librarian. Okay. And um, isn't it right that you landed in Berkeley at the University of California in Berkeley in 1968? Is that right? 67. 67. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. you don't consider yourself to be the perfect specimen of where our cultural, cultural imagination goes about <laughs> who was in Berkeley in 1967. 
No, although probably nobody <laughs> nobody emerged unscathed. But but I actually went to Jerusalem in 1969, largely because Berkeley was, you know, I wanted to be someplace that was sane. Um, <laughs> and Jerusalem, by comparison, looked calm to me. That's really interesting, isn't it? From this vantage point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with this... Um, with this focus and this theme of of the land, I I also wonder if you would just you know you know how did being in California uh, doing a lot of growing up there you know how what kind of um, let's just say what kind of cultural what kind of imagination did you did you uh, pick up from that place and from that part of your life about land right. what land means well first of all. I grew up in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, And I grew up on an island in the San Francisco Bay. Mm. And so there was never a time when I was not conscious of being in an exceptionally beautiful place. And maybe the best thing I can say about my childhood is that my friends and I did not take that for granted. Mm. Um, And we were outside every day. We would often just walk around the island and tell each other about the stories we were reading. <laughs> so so I grew up very attuned to what was around me and while it was not a it was not wilderness, it was not a particularly domesticated environment either. It mm-hmm. was um, I didn't grow up on city blocks with sidewalks, that kind of thing. Um, there was still a lot of wildness in the Bay Area in my childhood. And a, a second thing I would say is that I watched the place I loved most change over the early decades of my life and change in ways that I think we now all recognize are probably not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And while I didn't have that phrase to apply to it as a young person, I realized it was changing in ways that were probably not healthy. Um, what do you think of when you say that, that those changes? Well, I, you know, I, I think about highways going through places yeah. where there used to be farms. Uh, when I grew up, there was a lady raising goats, and I would pass her every day on my way to school. Well, you know, that that seems like another century now. It is <laughs> well, another it was, century. But <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, <clears throat> what really strikes me is also that this, this theme that, that you have become so, so passionate about and, and so wise about, and, and you've steeped yourself in the, in the text and traditions around it of the land, but that you started, uh, the, as I understand it, thinking about this maybe 15, 20 years ago. That, and, you, and it wasn't because you set out to be an environmentalist. You were, you were very mm-hmm. much a scholar. And yet, as you say, you, you, you stumbled across this. You, you came upon it in the course of nor- your normal professional activity of reading mm-hmm. and interpreting the Hebrew scriptures. So can you kind of tell me that story? I mean, can you sure. trace it? Mm-hmm. Sure. You were prob- you may even have been in the class, but um, I was lecturing my way all the way through the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, for mm-hmm. the first time. 
And I think at the end of the first semester, one of my doctoral student teaching assistants said when we were making up the final exam, well, you need to ask a question about land. And I said, why? And he said, because you talk about it all the time. And I was not conscious of doing that. I was simply aware of talking my way through each book of the Bible. I would now say it's obvious that I would be talking about land all the time because you can't go more than a few chapters in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible without seeing some reference to land, water, its health, its lack of health, um, the absence of fertile soil and water. Um, but at the time, that came as a surprise to me. And so I became more conscious of what I was doing. And at the same time, I had made a trip back to California and to a part of California, not so far from where I'd grown up, but far enough that I hadn't been there in a number of years. And again, I was shocked at the changes that had taken place within my memory. Hmm. And I began to recognize that there was a huge gap between the kind of exquisite attention that the biblical writers are giving to the fragile land on which they live and the kind of obliviousness that characterizes our culture or did at that time in respect to our use of land. And California and Israel are very comparable landscapes. Hmm. They're both, both fragile, both semi-arid. So I found time sort of collapsing in a certain sense, but there was an odious comparison between that care of land, which is at least held up as an ideal in the Bible, mm. and the disregard of it that I was seeing in my own, um, my own place. And then when you, as you took that realization back into your scholarship, did you even start seeing things that you hadn't, hadn't seen oh, before? Oh, yes. And that continues now. As I started reading texts, well, first I thought that I was going to have to be very careful to find texts that would speak to the care of land, and that turned out not to be true at all, that I could open up almost anywhere in the Bible and find something. <laughs> right. um, but now I continue to find that even reading chapters, passages that I've written on before, that I've lectured on countless times, when I read them from the perspective of what they have to say about the land on which our life depends and its health, things pop out at me that I had simply overlooked before, or things make sense to me that I had never tried to make sense of. Hmm. So, you know, what I thought would be interesting for us to do is, is just pick up Genesis. I've got I have um, I have the Tanakh, the uh, Jewish Publication Society Bible in front of me, and I have um, Everett Fox's Five Books of Moses, which is a translation um, that I first learned about in your classes um, about the Hebrew Bible, and uh, and it's very close to the Hebrew 
Yes. And not necessarily yeah. as linear. It doesn't necessarily read in a in a smooth way in English, but as you you've said it it makes the Hebrew more transparent including rhythms and allusions. And because so I mean I do think there are interesting discussions taking place across our culture and in churches, right? In this culture yes. right now where people are looking at how um, well, how complicit, in a way, Christianity has been, and, and in fact, certain readings of the Bible, and in fact, especially readings of Genesis. There are a few very pivotal images, uh, and they are about, I mean, there's, they're, they're about dominion, right? They're, they're about these phrases sure. that we have from Genesis, and, and even the idea of, I mean, I kind, I kind of think of maybe a cartoon-like idea, but our cartoon picture then also of Adam and Eve kind of taking over the garden. And um, so I just, you know, it, it, you talk about your, your book, uh, which is very beautiful and poetic as well as scholarly, which is uh, Scripture, Culture, and Ag- Agriculture, an agrarian reading of the Bible. I just thought you and I might, for a few minutes, indulge in a little agrarian reading <laughs> of Good. Genesis 1 and, and, and look at Genesis 1, look at Genesis 2. So, um, if so with agrarian eyes, you know, what... What do you see when you when you open Genesis one? Well, the f- the first thing that stands out is that the rhythm of the passage changes when we get to the creation of the dry land on the fifth day. Hmm. That up until that point, actually, I think the dry land is created a little bit sooner than the fifth day, but it begins to be furnished for habitation on the fifth day. Okay. And up until that point, Genesis, is, Genesis 1 is really very terse. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and it was so. But then, when the dry land begins to be furnished for habitation, suddenly there is... Blessing enters the world. Uh, so the, the creatures are blessed, and of course we know human beings are blessed on the sixth day, but we often overlook the fact that the creatures of sky and sea receive exactly the same blessing, be fruitful and multiply. Um, and... So we are living amongst creatures who are blessed before we even come into existence. I think that's an important thing to recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, something. You know, let's just let's just you know point out that I think the passage. If people know something from this, um, it is this this blessing that also seems to contain. Um, not just permission, but a commandment to, you know, the words, the translation is different, to have dominion. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Tanakh says to master it, uh, mm-hmm. to rule the fish of the sea. Um, and w- w- tell me how you, um, so, um, yeah, so, so, so you're saying that that's tempered, first of all, by the context. But, but you know, how do you step back from that? Right. And what do you see is happening there that okay. is not clear in the way we have translated and used these texts? Okay. The Hebrew word is a strong word. Um, and I render it, 
exercise skilled mastery amongst the creatures. Because I think the notion of skilled mastery suggests something like a craft, an art of being human, um, without taking away the fact that humans do, in from the perspective of almost all the biblical writers, not every single one, but almost all, humans occupy a very special place of power and privilege and responsibility in the world. Mm. But the condition for our exercise of skilled mastery is set by the prior blessing of the creatures of sea and sky, that they are to be fruitful and multiply. So whatever it means for us to exercise skilled mastery, it cannot undo that prior blessing. Hmm. I think that's pretty convicting for us in the sixth great age of species extinction. Hmm. What else? What else? Yeah. The other thing I would point out is that... There is tremendous emphasis on the fruitfulness of the earth. Right, right. The way the earth produces food for every creature. Mm-hmm. And again, there's a different rhythm here. Um, the emphasis on food begins in verse 11 let the earth grass forth grass, the Hebrew says. Um, <laughs> Let um, seed-bearing plants, fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, um, and it goes on for another uh, another verse. Continual emphasis on how the earth is prepa- is a self-perpetuating system of fertility, of mm. fruitfulness to provide for all, and and then there is the creation of the earth creatures, including humankind. And then again, at the very end of the chapter, God says to the humans, right after they have been given the charge to exercise skilled mastery, God Mm. says, look, I give you every seed-bearing plant that's upon all the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit that shall be yours for food and to all the animals and to the birds and to the things that creep on the earth. So food is being provided for all. It seems to me that this is the best, it's the first and maybe the best clue that we have of what it means for humans to exercise skilled mastery amongst the creatures. That we are the one creature that is conscious that everybody has to eat. Right. I mean, you even write about eating as practical theology. Um, so again, I mean, I think this is, here's a whole new area that you know that that Genesis talks to us about eating as part of being human and part of, as part of being a creature. Um, eating is something we talk about a lot these days in our culture, right? Along with mm-hmm. words like yeah. ecology and sustainability. So, so talk to me about about what you mean by that. What you see there that we haven't even paid attention to. I think we are beginning to wake up in this culture from a long period of obliviousness about what we eat. And, and we're also 
stepping out of our completely unprecedented um, a lack of awareness that eating has anything to do with our life with God. Right. I, th- I don't think any people in the world before 20th century industrial culture and especially its urban aspects, no people would have thought that what they ate had nothing to do with their life with God. But so it's important to realize what a bubble we have been in with <laughs> you know, respect to this. Is the, is the prayer at mealtime that's also going away, is that kind of a vestige of that mentality? Oh, certainly. But I think even people who have been saying grace over their meals have not thought very much about the gift of the land and water and fertile soil that brought the food to the plate. Hmm. And that, I think, is what's changing now in our time. I remember 15, 20 years ago when I began thinking about this and I would be asked to speak in a church or to a group of bishops or to a group of clergy and to do a sort of you know theological, biblical study. And I would say, this is what I wanted to work on. And they'd say, well, couldn't you do something theological? <laughs> right. Well, but that has really changed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something to be grateful for, that in while the situation on the ground has in many ways become worse, um, the awareness in our culture and in religious communication, communities um, really all over the world has grown significantly. And you, and you do, you know, again, you, you do put it in very vivid and stark um, religious terms. I mean, you've written, every day, taking our sustenance from the earth and from the bodies of other animals, we enter deeply into the mystery of creation. And you, you said this is pra- eating as practical theology because it gives us an opportunity to honor God with our bodies. You know, and when I read that, that has resonance for so many things um, that we're coming back to an awareness of again right mm-hmm. now in our culture, even obesity and right nutrition yes. and care of the body in many ways. Yeah. For a very long time, I think we have had a highly spiritualized notion of religion in the West, hmm. that, that our souls, our spirits, our hearts, whatever word we wanted to use for what connected us to God, those things connected us to God, our bodies did not, with the one exception of sexuality. We thought that sexual morality in some way connected us to God, but right, nothing right. else about our physical being does. I think we are letting go of that delusion now. Mm-hmm. Something else that you, um, that you point out in the text in Genesis that you dwell on is this image of God seeing, right? Because repeatedly mm-hmm. in the first chapter of Genesis... God saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about that, about what you, what you know, what you hear in that image. What we see, I think, 
is how we see the world is how we learn to value it. And it's striking that in Genesis 1, what we know of God, really the only things that we know of God is that God creates and God values what God has made. God sees it as as good, but that can also be translated, God saw how beautiful it was. Mm. And I think there's almost an element of of surprise, of delight that, you know, we know from our own smaller creations. Mm. Um, and so God is, in a sense, the first appreciator of the world, mm. the first one to see that it is beautiful. And, and I think Genesis 1 encourages us to see the world in that way. There's a quite striking difference in the way the woman in the garden, who later comes to be called Eve, the way the woman sees, and we're told quite precisely how she sees at the moment that she decides to eat from the one tree in the garden that she's told she can't eat from. Right. Um... Uh, sorry, I have to find Yeah, I'm that. looking forward to um. um Okay, I'm in chapter 3, verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating <laughs> and that it was desirable to the eyes <laughs> and the tree was to be coveted for making wise, uh, and she took from its fruit and she ate. Mm. And so what we're seeing through her eyes is a different way of valuing the world and interacting with it than than God's way. Mm. She comes to the conclusion that she should do the thing that God told her not to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think it's a brilliant sort of exploration of the dynamics of temptation. We convince ourselves that what we're doing is actually all for the good. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it's to be coveted for making wise. So she's setting herself up as an independent center of judgment separated from God. And I think from the perspective of Genesis, that's the path to disaster. That we're meant to see the world and value the world, learn to value the world in relationship with God. So, you know, I'm I'm interested. I'm looking at I'm looking here at the Jewish Publication Society translation, and so there is a, what you you know that she saw the tree. Um, they took of the fruit and ate, and then it says, "Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they perceived mm-hmm. that they were naked." Mm-hmm. Now, this is translation, obviously, but their eyes opened, and this perception is something different. Is it, it's d- right. different from seeing? What what is the distinction right. in the? 
the, the Hebrew says their eyes were opened, the eyes of the two of them were opened, and they knew. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't. But I think perceived is is a good translation. But it's, it's not saw. It's something different. <laughs> right. Right. No. It's it's they knew and the and then God comes to them and says, "Who told you that you were naked?" What they and this becomes the and then God gets it and says, "From the tree." God answers God's own question mm-hmm. and says. From the tree that I commanded you not to eat from it, you ate? It's, and at that point, I think God is almost, is in fact, disbelieving that this could have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a mistake. Sometimes this is interpreted, this moment, as when humans come into their own right. in a positive way. Right. Um, and certainly, humans are meant to know the world. The Bible places great emphasis on the goodness of true knowledge. But from a biblical perspective, knowledge can never be abstracted from our relationship with God. The Bible is not interested, as far as we can see, ancient Israel was not interested in abstract knowledge. They were not great astronomers. Hmm. Uh, They were not great mathematicians. Um, What the Bible identifies as wisdom is knowledge of the world combined with what in Hebrew is called Yirchatadonai, the fear of the Lord. Mm. Knowing the world as we also grow in knowledge of God and the ways of God. And if you put those two together, you come up with wisdom. If you put those two separately, you come up with shame and blame and you fall into an accursed world, which is what happens in Genesis 3. Right. You know what you said, um, and, I mean, you can, you can read this in several different ways, and as you say, it, it really does depend on what eyes you bring to it. Um, I think that a super, for, in a superficial reading, and I, I think this is the way I heard it you know, growing up in Sunday school, it doesn't really make sense that they can't eat from that one tree. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems kind of silly yeah. and arbitrary of God. Right. And right. Uh, something that was so striking to me reading some of this, uh, you know, into your scholarship on reading this through agrarian eyes is this idea that there's an ethos of restraint in the Garden of mm-hmm. Eden. I mean, not mm-hmm. much. I mean, mostly it's beautiful and delightful and to be enjoyed. Um, but there is this tree that shouldn't be eaten. And and as I think you point out when you write about this ethos of restraint, I mean, we are, we are coming back. In the 20th century, we, we did lose a sense of the logic of that. Mm-hmm. You, know, you keep using this word, we were oblivious. <laughs> we became oblivious and we somehow, at least in this culture, had the wealth and comfort to be oblivious for a while. But an ethos of restraint is precisely... I mean, and, and the fact that there are some trees we shouldn't chop down. I mean, let's just be really, or eat, right? Mm-hmm. That, be really mm-hmm. simple, simplistic about it is something that is a piece of knowledge that we're relearning. Yeah. 
there's a wonderful line. I don't think I treated it in my book. It's in the New Testament. It's in the book of Acts. When Paul is speaking to the Roman governor, Felix, and he's giving a small digest of the way of the Christian faith. And it's the narrator says, and when Paul spoke about justice, self-restraint, and the coming judgment, Felix became afraid. Mm-hmm. And I think that digest of the faith, which applies as much, I think, to the Old Testament as to the New, that it's about justice, self-restraint, and the coming judgment. And you can't have justice unless you have self-restraint. Because lack of restraint is inherently unjust if we think there's no limit to what we can do or what we can consume or what we can take as the woman in the garden takes from the tree. Mm -hmm. Up until then, God has given. This is the first time someone is taking without permission. Mm-hmm. What else do you... Does it, let's, let's make a distinction because everybody's not aware of this. They don't necessarily teach it in Sunday school, that in fact there are, there are two Genesis accounts here, that you, you and I have just mm-hmm. moved between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first Genesis account... Uh, uh, well, why don't you just let's sure. introduce that a little okay. bit. Okay. I think there's a sense in which there are two creation accounts in the Bible, but they have been put together into one larger story that takes a kind of stereoptic view, you might say. Mm -hmm. Genesis 1 is um, a sort of magisterial overview. It's a great liturgical poem uh, covering the seven days. And then, as I sometimes think of it, it's as though the camera zooms in okay. uh, in in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, um, when the camera zooms in on the human beings. Um, and the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 differ slightly from each other in small details, but I think the in the overall picture, they're complementary. And I sometimes say to my students, what would we be missing if we only had Genesis 1 and didn't have Genesis 2 or vice versa? Um, In Genesis 1, we learn that the human beings are created in some way that is not specified in the image of God. Mm -hmm. We bear some some unique resemblance to God. And in a sense, the whole rest of the Bible is, is better and worse attempts to, to live out that resemblance. Um, and, and then chapter 2 shows us our relationship with, with the earth itself. Uh, Genesis 2 is about Adam, the human being, created from Adama, the fertile soil. Mm, so there we are again. <laughs> yeah. The land. 
And so as the rabbis say, the ancient rabbis have a story about this, and they say that God is, um, is relating, we are related to what is above us, to God in the heavenly realm, and we are re- related to what is below, to the, the soil itself. Mm. And it's very important um, that, that, as you said, Genesis 1 is a liturgical poem. So, I mean, before we leave Genesis behind, I mean, would you talk about how that must inform our reading of what it's saying to us and, and how it's saying it to us. Sure. Um, poetry is language that speaks to our hearts. Um, and I'm using the biblical word heart, which I think the closest equivalent to that in 21st century language is our imaginations. Hmm. The heart in, as the Bible, in biblical physiology, the heart is the center of our emotions, but also of our intellect, and those two things cannot be separated. It is, the heart is where we come up with pictures of what our world is like. Um, And Poetic language is precise, it is detailed, it's, it's realistic, but it is not the discursive language of mere fact. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important that in different ways, the first and second chapters of the Bible are telling us about our place in the world, telling us about the web of relationships um, in, into which we are born yeah. <laughs> as a species. Hmm. Um, and, and we are placed creatures. Right. We're placed within an order. That's a quite different way, I think, of thinking about ourselves than what we often take to be a literal reading of the Bible, but in my view, a cruder way of reading the Bible. Hmm. You, over the years, um, as you've delved into this, you've made more and more connections with the poetry of well, especially Wendell Berry, not just Wendell Berry, also Mary Oliver. But, mm-hmm. but between poetry and these, um, what the what 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 the scriptures have to teach us and um, our place, as you say, you've mm-hmm. you've written about the poetry of loss and care as the poetry of creatures. What do you mm-hmm. what do you mean when you use those phrases? A starting point for me in thinking about ourselves as creatures is the observation of Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, that now the the art of being creatures is almost a lost art. And I think that notion that we need we need to learn 
we need to be skilled, we need to be wise in order to be the creatures that, in fact, we are, but in order to live our lives as, as creatures. This seems to me an insight that is, is pretty much lost in contemporary theology, or mm-hmm. largely lost, that we think of creatures as any, anyone who's not human. <laughs> mm, right, um, right. And again, I think it's part of the sense that we are limitless. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that dominion that we have over the creatures. Yeah, right? uh-huh. yeah. And it's why I like the phrase, the exercise of skilled mastery, because, mm-hmm. because it suggests an artfulness in, in being human. And I think that poetry... Well, I believe Wendell Berry says, poetry cannot be read in distraction. Hmm. You can, you know, you can often, you have to read an instructional manual, you know, or a textbook or whatever, without paying all that much attention and to kind of skim your way through it to get to the to get to the heart of the matter. But you can't read poetry that way. Poetry slows you down. And I think that anything in our world now that slows us down is, right. is to be valued and maybe is a gift and even a calling from God. Hmm. Um, and this connection between um, poetry and Place, I mean, mm-hmm. place is also something that, especially in in twentieth century American culture, we, I mean, we don't have a lot of. It's not that this is true for everyone or at every moment, but we also don't have a lot of patience with staying in one place. Or right, I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, roots is kind of an old fashioned idea, and in, in, in all of its um, connotations. I favor poets who relate deeply to the place that they are, uh, which is why I gravitate toward poets like Wendell Berry, Mary Oliver, Anne Porter. Mm-hmm. All of them resemble the biblical writers and I think are indebted to the biblical writers. All of them happen to be Christians. Um, for their sense of place and and I think could not write as they do without a rootedness in the physical geographical location right. where they are. I've moved around a lot in my life um, and I've often said of myself that I the grace of stabilitas of being the Benedictine virtue of being in a place for your life. I've often said that that's a grace that has eluded me. But I think in some ways I claim it secondhand through the writers, most of all the biblical writers, but also the contemporary poets who increasingly inform my thinking. Hmm. Now here are some, <clears throat> some lines from Wendell Berry uh, that you quote in an essay um, Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. Then some later lines, 
there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a sort of devastating statement. It is. It I is. I think. And certainly Wendell Berry is, feels that there are more and more desecrated places. But I think what he's suggesting is that any place potentially can be a place where God is peculiarly present to us. And that's what Jerusalem stands for in the Bible and stands for in the religious imagination of those who read the Bible, Jews and Christians, that Jerusalem, not only the, not only the city as it actually existed and, and does exist, but even sometimes more Zion, which is a sort of theological entity. Um, it's an it's an entity that exists in the heart more than it exists on the map. Zion, Jerusalem, is the place where God is peculiarly present to us. And that's what the temple stands for. That's what the Garden of Eden stands for in the Bible. It's the place where humans lived in the immediate presence of God. Right. And the... The aim of pilgrimage, but even I, I've come to feel <laughs> the aim of, of reading scripture um, is to bring us back into the immediate presence of God. I mean, this is where also all of the connotations that, um, that the specialness of land, you know, especially Jerusalem or in the context of Israel, that we've that have all the connotations that have been layered over um, have have been layered on top of um, um, mm-hmm. our imagination about the Bible and about what this means um, over time. Really, really get in the way of of hearing this being about being in the presence of God as as opposed to um, possessing land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and part of. Part of what I find myself doing in my writing now is creating a kind of shift in paradigm because it's, I've seen that there is something more basic in the Bible than possession of land. It's care of land. Okay. And it's the best index in the Bible of the health of the relationship between God and Israel or between God and humankind is the health of the land of Israel or the earth as a whole, its fertility. And so when humans are out of sync with God, you might say, not living in obedient relationship with God, well, they get kicked off the land in the first instance in Genesis, they get kicked out of the garden. Right. Uh, when Israel is obedient, it is booted out of the land and sent into exile. This is a repeated pattern in the Bible. And I think at the root of it is the notion that we, we are part of 
an intricate web of physical relations, which are at the same time moral relations. Okay. And that the way we live on the earth with other creatures is necessarily, it necessarily has moral and immoral dimensions, not just in the ways that we use our sexuality, for instance, which That's been well explored in the religious uh, (laughs) sphere. But every aspect of our physical being, how we eat and drink, how we sow our land, how we get food to our plates, how we use other bodies, other human bodies in getting food and drink to sustain us, these are moral issues which cannot be separated from very basic physical questions. Go on. And so I think the issue of land possession is important. There's no question it's important in the Bible. Mm -hmm. But it's the question of possession can never be separated from the question of care. And I think in our, in maybe all of our cultures, going back to ancient times, we have put first priority on the questions of physical possession. And somehow thought that the questions of care would take care of themselves or someone else. Someone else would take care of that. And I think now we've sort of come up against the wall and maybe the best thing that we can say about about ourselves at this point is we're reaching the end of that delusion. Right. And there's something very striking also in looking at kind of the sweep of where your thinking has taken you, where your studies have taken you, that, you know, I mean, at the one and the same time, there's a new association and a new sense of the relevance and the and the present resonance of these mm-hmm. images of Genesis and these meanings of it. And also this prophetic, <laughs> this prophetic message, also in the sense of mm, waking, needing to wake people up, right? Being, mm-hmm. being a voice mm-hmm. of uh, judgment is a hard word. It's not even a, it's not a complicated enough word. Um, it... Um, I think that if one, if one reads scripture carefully, one is continually challenged to rethink maybe everything that we take for granted. Mm. I sometimes say to my students, the best way to find your preaching angle for any text is to ask how it challenges or turns on its head your ordinary way of thinking about how things really are. Mm. And that, I think, is the prophetic dimension of Scripture itself. So you draw this... um, You draw this line um, in your book. You talk about... 
Jeremiah's, the prophet Jeremiah's vision of the return of chaos coming to your mind in the summer of 1996 in Kentucky when you visited a mountaintop removal site. Would you just tell, tell yeah. me that and talk about that juxtaposition for you? I, it's a shocking thing to go around to the other side of the mountain and it's not there. Um, <laughs> mountaintop removal sites from the road, you're looking at what appears to be a mountain. And so it's, it's a tremendously shocking thing to realize that you're looking at a sort of false front of a mountain. Mm. Um, and when I, when I went to this mountaintop removal site, I thought this is, I, I really had a visceral reaction to it. I thought this is how one would feel standing at Auschwitz, hmm. something I've not hmm. done. Hmm. And, but I remembered that Jeremiah in, in the fourth chapter has a vision which very much echoes the first chapter of the Bible, but in a sense turns it inside out because what Jeremiah is looking at is the world coming unhinged. Mm. And so just as the first chapter of the Bible says over and over again, and God saw, Jeremiah says, and I saw. Mm. Uh, I saw the earth. It is unformed and void. I saw the skies and their light is gone. I saw the mountains there quaking and all the hills are rocking. I look no person is left, and all the birds of the sky have fled. I look, the farmland is wasteland, and all its ta towns are in ruin because of the Lord, because of his blazing anger. Well, I couldn't think of anything that more describes the devastation that we are wreaking in the middle of our own country. Um, the farmland is wasteland and all its towns are in ruin. Um, at the time that I went to that mountaintop removal site... We should say this I is from the purpose of mining, right? It's just a yes, kind of violent... Yes. Yes. Right, it's coal mining. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was living in New Haven, Connecticut, just an hour down the road from the central offices of the, of the mining company. Mm. They're not blowing up mountains in Connecticut. They're blowing up mountains in Kentucky and West Virginia, mm. um, where the property is, in um, monetary terms, not so valuable, and where perhaps the people are not considered so valuable. Right, right. You know, a lot of... Um, uh, uh, you and also, I mean, Wendell Berry, who I think is kind of this prophetic poet, poetic figure, um, uh, do a lot of describe. He does a lot of describing of this this waste and destruction, this chaos. Something I'm really aware of, um, and 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 much of that now is becoming familiar. You know, these litanies are becoming familiar mm -hmm. of what of what we have wrought. 
a concern I have, uh, and, and of course journalists are also those kinds of prophets in a way. I mean, a lot of that you, we we become we're yes. inundated with these facts, and and with images that can be, um, I think, are presented with the purpose of of uh, of awareness and perhaps a different kind of action, but can also be paralyzing and debilitating. You know, they can have that opposite effect on our imaginations and on our mm-hmm. action. So I wonder how you think about what the biblical text um, offers, um, also in terms of nourishing uh, hope and courage and, and practical um, ways of living forward in a different way. It's interesting that none of the so-called prophetic books of the Bible, the books that actually have the names of prophets attached to them, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, all of those books bring us to despair if we take them seriously, if we apply them to our lives. They, in a sense, bring us to our knees. But none of them ends without what they call in the book of Jeremiah the book of consolation. None of them ends without a picture of the people of God returning to healthy relationship with God. And all of them have a picture of the land being fruitful and productive in celebration, you might say, of that restored relationship between God and humanity, God and Israel. In, and as kind of a parallel to that, when I began working in this area and I saw how deep the problems were, I got more and more depressed. I noticed this happens with my students when we begin studying this. The, the first movement is into depression. Mm-hmm. But then there begins to be a, a sort of brightening, a brightening on the path, you might say, <laughs> as we begin to, say, to see that there are other people seeing the same things we're seeing and working on these things. Right. And so as I wrote the book, I became more hopeful. Uh, not because I don't take with full seriousness the difficulties of our situation, but because I see that there are more and more sparks of light and maybe small, partial solutions or ameliorations, um, hopeful projects that are going on. And, And for me, one of the most hopeful things is that there are more and more young people working in this area. So it's, Wendell Berry says, now when hope sets out on its desperate search for reasons, <laughs> it can find them. Okay. You know, there are reasons, you know, mm-hmm. it's um, in the language of scripture, giving reason for the hope that is in us. And it's there. You know, you use, you use phrases in your writing that are they're kind of countercultural, um, you know. You, you speak of a tenacious but severely chastened hope, or um, things that are encouraging and deeply sobering. <laughs> uh, 
And maybe it is that kind of realism that we have to have about hope, um, how closely it can be mingled with our despair and yet survive. Certainly there is a difference between hope and a foolish optimism. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to have hope, you have to see the depth and the dimensions of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are beginning to grasp. I'd like to talk to you about um, your work in Sudan. And and before we move to that, you know, I just want to say that for people who don't um, spend a lot of time in conversation in this world of biblical scholarship or who aren't uh, Christian and Jewish and don't haven't inhabited this world of biblical illusions, you know, uh, when when we talk about the land and Israel, right, that's so fraught with cultural, political connotations of things people have seen in the news. And, and you know, there's not a sense of... I'm not sure that it's necessarily obvious to somebody who's lis- who might be listening to this conversation on outside on the outside um, h- how many um, you know what that means when you talk about Israel and about the land and and how you are talking about it as much in terms of how it, those biblical stories and teachings apply to a life in North Carolina or California, right? Yeah, right? I yes. mean, so yeah. Um, and I and one of the things that's intrigued me about the teaching you're doing in Sudan now um, is that you you've talked about how your students there who want to learn the biblical languages have also told you that they live that they they that you've said they have and they are agrarian people and that there's a sense in which they live in that world and mindset of the biblical writers in a way that's closer than your own. Yes. They, the peoples of southern Sudan are tribal peoples. They, most of my friends my age grew up in farming villages or in villages that they were mixed um, pastoral work with um, sheep and goats, not sheep, excuse me, with goats and cows yeah. um, and farming. Um, and they live in a kinship-based culture. All of these are points of connection with the Bible uh, in which the individual is not the focus of attention or decision-making. They, all of those, all decisions are made by a family or a people as a whole. Um, all of those are ways in which, as they say, we live in the Old Testament. Mm. But maybe the most important way that the Southern Sudanese have found themselves in the Old Testament is as a people who have suffered so profoundly and yet found their faith in the God that ancient Israel worshipped, have found a God who can enable them to endure their suffering, to, in a certain sense, make sense of their suffering, if you can ever make sense of, mm. of suffering. Um, not rational sense, but heart sense. Um, and they are also a people who have 
to a, in a very real way, lost their land. They've right. been booted. They've been driven off of their land. They've been driven into exile. And now, um, by the grace of God, as they certainly understand it, of returning to rebuild. All of these are stories that, for which they find precedent in the Bible. One of the things that has been most striking to me is that the students I teach, young men and women in their late 20s, 30s, um, these are people who grew up in refugee camps. Mm -hmm. And so they do not have the skills that their parents and their grandparents and ancestors had, the skills of farming and caring for animals. Um, for livestock. And so they're reclaiming those skills. And because I teach people who are going to be priests, who are going to be the religious leaders in their community, and they'll be leaders for um, not only for Christians, but for Muslims and for African traditional religionists. Mm -hmm. um, but they will be leaders. If they can model skills and healthy ways of living, model and teach those, then they will have an opportunity to build up their communities. And so the church has actually become in southern Sudan, the Episcopal Church of Sudan is the primary NGO. It's the primary deliverer of social services. And in cooperation with the Episcopal Church of Sudan, we are developing a holistic model of theological education that includes subjects like biblical languages, right. but it also includes sustainable agriculture, community health, nutrition. And all of those are being taught in ways that connect with biblical and theological ways of understanding the world. Right. I want to understand something. I'm, I'm assuming that the prominence of the Episcopal, the Anglican Church in southern Sudan comes from the British colonial period. Is that right? It does. Okay. It does. Um, and, and, it's, and it's a very fast-growing part of the Anglican communion. It's possibly the fastest-growing church in the communion. It's a church of four and a half, five million now, which is at least twice or more the size of the Episcopal Church in North America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you just pointed at this in what you just said, but it's, it's a very dramatic place where, um, I mean, the, the, the history of Sudan and the crisis and the war and the turmoil, it, it has very much centered around the fertility of land and, the, and contested land. Yes. <laughs> the, the northern part of Sudan is arid. It's, Sah it's Saharan. Um, and Khartoum is semi-arid, the capital of Sudan. The, mm -hmm. um, and, and then as one moves south in Sudan, it's a very large country, a million square miles, as one moves south, one is moving into increasingly humid, watered, fertile land. Mm -hmm. um, it also is land that has oil underneath it. Right. So the 
the gifts of the land are also the thing that make the peoples of southern Sudan vulnerable to um, land loss and and military attack. And, I mean, this makes it a very dramatic place for you to be teaching and, you know, enacting some of these new readings. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe the oldest possible reading as well, but these new ways of seeing this, the, especially these Genesis texts, this, this sense of a different relationship between the land and people than has been developed in human cultures in the West. I can... I'm this summer going to be working in Sudan on specifically on the subject of Bible and environment. And I have learned a great deal from farmers in North America and also in Southeast Asia, um, where I've, I've taught. Uh, but I think I may learn even more in Sudan because when I first went to Sudan six years ago, there was no electricity mm-hmm. in southern Sudan. It's only within the last six, eight years that people are moving into an industrialized culture. So these are very, very recent memories. And the Sudanese recognize things in the Bible that I simply don't have I, I have no recognition. Like, of. like what? What's, what? Give me an example. Um, a couple of years ago, I had been asked by the Archbishop of Sudan if I would teach the books of Exodus and Leviticus because when he was my student in at Virginia Theological Seminary in the 1990s, those were his favorite parts of the Bible. Okay. Because Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy show a tribal agrarian culture. So he asked me if I would teach those parts. I, because we were teaching, we were studying Leviticus, I assumed I would have to say something about sexuality. It's such a hot button topic in the Anglican communion. So I'd sort of screwed my courage to the sticking place and I walked into the classroom and the first morning and I looked at them and I realized... I am the only person in this room who knows nothing about the topic that Leviticus takes up in its very first chapters, and that is offering animal and cereal sacrifices Mm -hmm. to God. And Leviticus has two verses on homosexuality. It has seven chapters on offering sacrifice. (laughs) So... I said to my students, am I the only person here who understands nothing about these chapters? And they all nodded. And we then spent two or three days talking about what they knew about sacrifice from their tribal traditions. They're all Christians. Mm -hmm. They don't practice sacrifice, but they understand what it symbolizes in terms of their relationship with God. And that just completely changed our way of reading the book of Leviticus. Hmm. Hmm. You know, most of the people who, uh, possibly most of the people who, who listen to this conversation between us, and including you and I, 
are city dwellers, <laughs> are not mm-hmm. agrarian in any kind of way that we can identify or way we would define ourselves. So talk to me a little bit about what this way of seeing, reading the Bible and thinking about land and care and loss of land and creation, how, what this says for city dwellers. I think what it says is that our cities cannot be regarded as entities in themselves. Our cities are no more important than the watersheds and the bread baskets that surround them and on which their lives depend. And therefore, the lives of us who live in cities depend mm-hmm. directly. One of the most positive things that has happened in the years I've been working on this book is that more and more, not only in the city in which I live, Durham, North Carolina, but in the cities that I visit, I see farmers in the middle of the city selling their food. Um, This is a change. Right. For the most part. And, it, and it's, it's that a seriousness good about eating that we talked about in Genesis at the very beginning. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned that in Vancouver, B.C., 45% of the residents grow some of their own food. Mm-hmm. It may be a pot of basil and parsley on the windowsill, but they grow something that they eat. I think that being conscious of where our food comes from and who grows it and at what cost, that's something that all of us can do and must do. Certainly, if everybody decided to move out of our cities, it would be a disaster. That's not what I'm advocating. Right, right. But just realizing that the the kind of contempt that I think many urban dwellers have had for rural areas and the people who live in them, the kind of contempt that allows us to blow up mountains in Kentucky and and West Virginia and fill the hollows with the rubble, um, that kind of contempt is suicidal for people who live in cities. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a sentence in, in one of your, in your writing, you wrote, um, an urban world completely uninvolved in and ignorant of agriculture is a quite new phenomenon and necessarily a transitory one. You know, I think that sentence 10 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly, would have sounded ridiculous in many American mm-hmm. ears, and now it sounds... Um, and now it doesn't, <laughs> in a very short period yeah. of time. Yeah. We see something transient in forms that we thought were highly advanced and the shape of the future. I think the grace of God that I experience in publishing this book at the end of the first decade of the 21st century is that it actually came out at a time when it makes sense. If it had come out 
even five years before, mm-hmm. I think it would have been dismissed as really quirky. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just purely academic. <laughs> um, I mean, there are still some who describe it as, um, as extremely quirky. But on the whole, I think it makes, I think it makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for that. What have we not talked about that, that's really important for you in this, in this conversation? What have I not asked you? Hmm. Well, I actually think you've asked me. I think you've asked me everything I would have wanted to talk about. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe the only thing, maybe the only thing that I would want add is um, that this is such a, how we eat is such a comprehensive phenomenon. I think it touches every aspect of our physical lives. It's hard to think of an aspect of our cultural lives that doesn't have some connection with how we eat, you know, if you follow it down the line right, long enough, right. that everyone, especially thinking, because I teach, I think about young people who are just beginning to choose the ways that they will work in the world. Everyone has a piece of the action. Um, and whether they're musicians or visual artists or scientists or you know, whatever, everyone has a way of being involved in a better way of eating. Hmm. I have one of my producers behind the glass has a question. And will I be able to hear him just in my headphones? Okay, because I was hearing you through the... I was hearing you through the speakers a minute Okay. All right. So, Ellen, I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening, and then I'll be back with you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Where did you, where have you been communicating with him on Twitter? Okay. <laughs> You're going to love this one. <laughs> okay. I bet you're as big on Twitter as I am, Ellen. Oh yeah, as adept. <laughs> okay, so all right, so here's... I know that I know the relevant strong verb that pertains to it, though. That's all I know too. All right, so hang on, I've got to hear this. All right, okay. so go, go, Trent. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. So apparently, um, my senior editor, Trent, is tweeting this conversation we're having. And he has had a question come in from a student of yours who loves you. And he was afraid to ask this question in your classes. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, So which is, how do city dwellers, urbanites, relate to an agrarian mindset without romanticizing it? I think... The best way to do that is 
to listen to farmers and to meet farmers. Um, as we've been talking about, that's easy to do now because there probably isn't an urban area. Right, they're, they're so, in your city. Right? Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. They're in our city. Mm -hmm. So talk to them um, and find out what they're doing, what their hopes are, and also what their struggles are. Um, and I don't know any farmer who isn't struggling. Right, right. Uh, and even it doesn't matter what model of farming they're using, if they're using small farming, trying to get off the grid, uh, or if they are involved in industrial farming. I don't know any of them who are not struggling and to some degree suffering. Um, so I think that's the most important thing mm -hmm. that we can do in order not to romanticize it. I'd also suggest that you can read some of what is happening in new modes of agricultural research. Okay. Because some people think that when I'm I or others are talking about agrarianism, we're sort of talking about um, going back 100 years, if not 2,000 years. Um, but it's not, it's not right, an it's, exercise well, in nostalgia. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, there's, and so scientists, who, some of whom are also farmers, are a very important part of shaping the vision of the future. And, and there's no one more important in my, in my thinking or, I think, in the future of agriculture than Wes Jackson and the Land Institute. Um, he is a West scientist, Jack isn't he? He's a he is. He's, a, he's an evolutionary biologist. Right. He, he's a plant geneticist. Uh, who is working on a model, a, a completely different model of agriculture. Uh, for 10,000 years, the dominant model has been annual plants grown increasingly in monoculture. And the model he's working with is perennial plants grown in polyculture. But... Um, with large, non-shattering, seed-bearing heads. So this would mean wheat, um, especially wheat, but other forms of edible, nutritious grains that p can be grown without plowing and stripping mm. the land mm. each year. Okay. I think it's tremendously important. I have another friend, um, Mary Eubanks, a biologist at Duke University, who is also a plant biologist, and she's growing high-protein, drought-resistant corn. Her corn, her maize, now is at 17% protein. Mm. The significance of that, uh, when you think about, and this is non-genetically modified, yeah. um, when you think about the potential significance of that uh, in terms of um, the world population, it's very significant. I just want to make sure. Chris, can we go a couple minutes over? Okay. All right. Um, you know, something in terms of large themes that jumped out at me reading you. No, we've got a hard out at 3 o'clock.
Oh, well, we'll be done in five. 3.30, 3.30, hard out. Oh, 3.30. Thank you. So you have three, two minutes. Okay. All right. Well, I think then, well, I just want, just very quickly, two minutes. Um, the, the fact that when you talk about, um, the cre- about creation and, and Genesis and this agrarian reading of the Bible and is that it, there, there's beauty in it, there's, uh, there's reverence in it, and also that the Bible and all the imagery of the Bible is no stranger to catastrophe, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to loss and to bitterness and grief. And it, it seemed especially, I mean, that really seemed especially um, present and, um, and in fact fitting for this subject in this moment in, in our culture in a way that surprised me. Yes. I remember my first seminary dean when I was a student saying, if you don't shed some tears while you're here, you will have missed the point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Anything else in the last word? I don't think so. Okay. But it, great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. I, I have some, we probably will have some follow-up questions. I would actually love to, we would love to ask Wendell Berry to maybe read some poetry to intersperse in this. So we might ask you to help us reach out Sure. To I'll be seeing Wendell. I'll be visiting Wendell and Tanya um, June 12th and 13th, I think, somewhere in okay. there. I don't know what our t- t- schedule is, but can, 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 I, can, I, can I email you? If we, absolutely. Okay. All right. Abs- absolutely. I can, I can phone them and ask, and I think he, he's likely to be helpful All on right. that. All right. That's fantastic. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, so you much. and Dwayne sent you his love. All right. Is that their mind? All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone at Duke. Thank you. Bye.